Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and this is another of our great in-depth interviews with a member of our Free Zone Frontier Program at Strategic Coach, and this is Tony Caldwell. And uh, Tony is in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and they have cosmic light. You'll be able to tell <laughs> right off the bat, looking at my sort of normal skin colors in Toronto, Ontario, Tony's in a special light. And this comes from the inside of Tony. This is not coming from the outside. <laughs> anyway, Tony, it's been such a treat over the last two, three weeks because we've been touching base, members of the Free Zone, and you've been telling a great story during these sessions. So we have Free Zone frontier entrepreneurs from all over the world. And in a little bit, I'll just tell you what the Free Zone is, and I'll ask Tony to sort of talk about the difference that the Free Zone has made in his thinking about his future. But Tony, you've been telling a great story about how you've instantly pivoted when the virus crisis started, you know, and you had shutdowns and basically business as normal really ended and how you actually said, okay, this is a big opportunity. How do we now really maximize the value of what we're going through here right now? So just two or three things that you've really focused on that you might not have done during normal times, but you're doing them during scary times. Well, I think the first thing is we really just decided that the boundaries that we've always operated in didn't matter anymore. We operate in the Midwest part of the United States in five states, but we felt like we had a lot to contribute to our industry across the country. And, you know, we believe that that contribution will come back to us in terms of business in ways we really don't anticipate. We can't really anticipate, but we believe that's going to happen. So we've just dramatically ramped up the training, mentoring, you know, resources, communication, things that we're doing pointed at our industry, first of all. And we've had an immediate reaction to that you know, that's been favorable and positive. The second thing that we did, you know, when an agency joins us, it costs them some money up front and it costs us some money up front for us to put that relationship together. People don't make decisions to invest money usually in the first two weeks of a crisis. So we decided to just forestall all that into 2021. You talk a lot about having cash confidence and when you do, you can be focused on capability. So really, it allowed us to pivot all of our marketing, you know, things we're doing to focusing on capability and basically telling people that want to engage with us, we'll worry about the cash later. I think that's been very profound mm -hmm. for us. You know, and then for me personally, as an entrepreneur, I'm finding that I'm spending virtually 100% of my time in my unique ability. There just isn't any crappy stuff that I have time to do. I suppose I could get sidetracked into it, but that's really allowing us to build a lot of tools and processes for the future. So, you know, we're really excited. I mean, someday this is going to be over. And, you know, the challenge is, you know, how we come out of this. And I think we're spending a lot of time doing development work that won't show up for another two or three months, probably. Yeah. The reason all those of you who are listening to Tony talk, I started off with, you know, just what's happening right now in the world. And you can already tell some of Tony's mindsets. And now I'm going to take the film right back to the beginning. And we're going to talk about Tony as an entrepreneur, how he got started, where he got started, and then some jump stages that brought him to the company he had 
prior to the virus, you know, and what he was planning for 2020. Because we all had a different future planned in February than we now have in March. So I'd just like to take you back where it all got started. When you can honestly say, you know, I'm actually an entrepreneur here. I'm not somebody's employee. I'm not doing that. And you're actually on your own and you're responsible for your own financial security. And you don't get opportunities unless you create value for others. Right. Well, you know, I'm lucky because I'm the third generation in my family to be an entrepreneur. I really started my first business when I was 10, subcontracting labor. I'd hire neighborhood kids for a quarter and rent them out at 50 cents. It was the Tom Sawyer model, the Tom Sawyer model. Well, I actually bought a key machine back in the 70s in the apartment boom, and I was cutting keys for uh, apartment complexes, and I, we shot hoops. Uh, we didn't paint the fence, but we shot hoops, and I paid my friends a dollar an hour while I made 12 cutting keys. So I was, I think I was 12 and 13 then. So really had the bent really my whole life and came out of college, went in the life insurance business before going back to graduate school. And then I took the only job I had ever had as an adult working for a company selling computers. And I got fired from that because the president of the company, when I tried to buy it from the owner because I thought I could run it better. He said, I like my job. It's clear you want it. So you're fired. And I decided that I would never again be in a position where somebody else controlled or determined my future. So from there, I went into the real estate management business for a number of years and built a company that I sold so I could run for the United States Senate. Having done that, then a friend of mine suggested I get in the insurance business. When I started in the business, my goal was to build a large sales organization. I thought that'd be fun to do. And but I had no idea how to do it. I didn't have any money, really, any capital, and I really didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, as you say, the eyes only see and the ears only hear, you know, what the mind is looking for. And I found some people in 1997 that had figured out how to do what I wanted to do. And when I saw it, I instantly recognized it. And that was the beginning of One Agents Alliance. Yeah. Just to go deeper in the model that you have is that you separated agencies into their front stage where they're actually selling and the backstage where they're generally not very, very good. I find that in the insurance industry, regardless of which branch of insurance, what makes them successful is that they're good salespeople. They're good Mm -hmm. moving the product and bringing in the income. But generally the tough part of it for them is the backstage. And you've kind of created a very, very broad geographic network where you're actually there backstage. Well, we're a big part of it, at least. You know, we teach, train, and mentor them on how to run a business. And you're right. That's the big lack that many agencies have. And, of course, as we grew and got pretty good-sized, carriers pay us for the growth that we create and also our size. And so we've attracted a lot of agencies that have been in business for as long as 100 years who were stuck, and they wanted to get unstuck. And we, we have a you know big toolkit to help them with that. And you have economies of scale because of your dealings with the big insurance, you know, the insurers, the reinsurers, and that whole level. You're sort of the person who really, really simplifies everything except what the agencies are really great at. That's right. Yeah, I'm a simplifier, and all my partners, I have 181 partners, they're all multipliers. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Never really knew what that was until you introduced the concept, but it, you know, made instant sense to me. Yeah. Last New Year, you came in and you were at the 180 level 
of agencies and you were into big, big growth plans for the 2020 year. And then, boom, we all got inconvenienced. Tony, I'm 75, and I have to tell you, this is the big disruption of my lifetime. I think it's the seventh since I've started coaching, and I've had all kinds of economic downturns, and I've had, here in Toronto, we really got hit with the impact, not that it was that bad of an epidemic, but the SARS that happened in, you know, 15 years ago. But it closed down all of our U.S. business coming to Toronto, you know, so we just lost a whole quarter. And I can remember that by that time, Babs and I had really gotten used to what you do when there's a downturn. And there's two things that I focus on, and that is that you keep everybody's confidence up every day in your company. And number two is that you go out and help your client base to have a bigger future because they just had a future taken away from them. And I'd like you to reflect on this because you just went through a major, major exercise of helping your agencies get a new future after the one they were planning on got taken away. Right. I mean, you know, we actually spent December, January, and February with our growth coaches meeting one-on-one with our agencies doing the DOS conversation, you know, dangers, opportunities, and strengths, and where they want to go over the next three years. And it really was invigorating and energizing to a lot of our agencies. I think we did conversations with 150. So, you know, we spent December, January, and February having DOS conversations with 150 of our 181 agents. And both our team and all of our agency teams were really excited about executing plans in 2020. And in fact, we were planning to add about 40 to 50 agencies to our organization in 2020. We've hired new salespeople, new team members. And, and then late in February, the very beginning of March, it was obvious something might interfere with that. And so, you know, the first thing I did was have a team meeting and tell everybody, look, I think this is what's going to come and I think this is what's going to happen. We've got to get ready for it. But we are well positioned for that. We're in a great financial position and we need to focus on helping our members. Your jobs are secure. No one's going to get laid off. Nobody's going to lose their job. We just need to focus on taking care of our clients who are our agencies. And then over the next 10 or 12 days, we did that. We got ready to move virtually. And it's been fun to watch because we're operating at a higher level now than we were 30 days ago. And the morale is incredible because everyone knows very directly the difference we're making and we're in great communication with each other. And so I would say all our plans got turned on their heads and 181 insurance agencies' plans are turned on their heads. So we have to pivot now and go back and say, all right, with the R factor question in mind, there's new dangers, there's new opportunities, and how do we take your strengths to address both of those? And we're finding that that's meeting a great reception from the agents because they see that there's an opportunity to really grow out of this. Yeah. Well, what I find really, really interesting is, and I've mentioned this on a few of the interviews, He was a top FBI negotiator, hostage negotiator, very tense situations. And, you know, he was in situations where it didn't work. And, you know, there was loss of life. Both the hostage and the kidnapper lost their lives or the terrorists lost their life. But he said that one of the interesting things about it, he said, is that there's this popular belief that when there's a crisis, people rise to the occasion. 
And he said his experience is that that's not true, that what happens is that you default to your highest level of preparation. So talk a little bit about other scary times that you've had and the wisdom that you developed about them, but also the immediate kind of organizational capability that you learned that the moment you sense that there's going to be a shift, you go into action. You know, you don't go on defense, you start off on offense. You know, I remember back in the 1980s when the real estate market was really falling apart in the United States and the Resolution Trust Corporation came in to bail out the savings and loans. Someone told me that this was going to be the greatest transfer of wealth in our lifetimes. And so we went from really managing property for other people to actively investing in property and doing things for ourselves and did pretty well at that. You know, you make a pivot when new opportunity presented themselves. Some people had a disaster, but it was really good for us. Another for me was I had really from the time I was 10 or 11, just planned to run and serve in the U.S. Senate. And after running and losing in the early 90s, I realized I get to start completely over again. What you've learned is that when you fail sometimes, it opens up bigger horizons. And it really caused me to lose any fear of failing. Because when you've been as low as I was then, I mean, it just doesn't matter anymore. Well, I always tell people that the great reward of running for political office is the campaign. You want to avoid the misfortune of actually winning. (laughs) You know, 25 years later, I can agree with you. It was difficult. Because you meet all sorts of new people that you would never have met. There's tremendous enthusiasm. And it actually develops a organizational model. You know, right. campaigns are like little entrepreneurial startups. And, That's right. Uh, you know, you have to raise money and, you know, you got to position yourself well. And it was so funny, last Thanksgiving here in Canada, which is in October, I was with someone who was of the left-leaning persuasion. And we had a national election and he said, you know, I was thinking about running, but he says, I'm for the Green Party. And I said, oh, you should have run. I said, first of all, I said, you would have met people that you would never meet. You know, I mean, you would develop skills, you would develop organizational ability, you'd learn how to speak in public and debate in public. I said, it's really terrific. And because you're with the Green Party, there was no chance that you would win. So you wouldn't get the booby prize at the end. So so anyway, I mean, I really appreciate it. Actually, someone you know, probably in Oklahoma City, who was a great client of ours and ran for the state Senate in Oklahoma, Mike Maisie. You know, I helped him with the DOS question. He ran his entire campaign on the DOS question. And I think he was in for more than a dozen years in the state Senate in Oklahoma. You know, I mean, you've tasted defeat, and I think that losing is a crucial part of knowing how to win. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. You learn far more from your defeats than you learn from your victories. Um, yeah. So, Tony, I mean, you're all primed, and we have this concept now that we're talking at the free zone level of the first 100 days. It won't be the old normal that we come back to. We're not returning to any old normal because too much right. – will change. But when we get to the new normal and the all clear signal is whistled or the siren goes off and we can mingle and we can congregate and we can be back to normal procedures. Now, what are you going to do during the first hundred days, you and your organization? 
the big thing is to do 10 times better, to do 10 times better with the first 100 days after the downturn than the 100 days before the downturn. Well, the first thing we're going to do is go into harvest mode because right now we are sowing and we're nurturing relationships. You made the comment last week about, you know, focusing on your 30 best relationships. And I have all of my salespeople doing that right now. And so we expect to harvest a lot of benefit from that. We just hired another person on our recruiting team who started April 1st. Mm-hmm. And we're looking for a couple more people right now. So we're actually hiring people because there's an opportunity. There's a lot of really, really talented people that just lost their jobs and lost yep. their future. And we want to bring them onto our team, which will make us better and stronger. So, you know, we're not going to wait for the first 100 days after this is over. We're doing a lot of things now. Yep. But I think that the first 100 days after we're back will be a real period of harvest. Mm-hmm. And then, there's going to be a new normal. Uh, There already is. The ability now to communicate the way we are is going to free us up to do more and do it faster. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Tony, I go back to year one. So this would be, I guess, the 11-year-old Tony Caldwell (laughs) doing big key contracts when you were 11 years old. And already you understood who, not how, that you know, others were going to work and you were going to make sure that the revenues came to the right person. But let's say in your 20s, let's say university, you're just graduating from university and you're going out. If I were to ask that person and show them the Tony Caldwell who's operating right now, what do you think the three greatest surprises that that person would have had looking at who you are right now? I think they would have been surprised at where I ended up because it isn't where I was intending to go. And that's an important point for entrepreneurs. You have to do a lot of R&D in the marketplace right? to figure out where your passion is and also where your skills are. Yep. You know, I think that'd be the first thing. You know, in my 20s, I spent some time in seminary because I've always wanted to help people. And I don't know that my 22 or 3-year-old self would recognize the business that I'm in today, which is really all about helping others be successful. If they're successful, we're successful. So it's actually a, a flowering of seeds that were planted, you know, 40 years ago that I just didn't know what the crop was going to look like when it came out of the ground, I guess. And I think the other thing that would be different is that I think in my 20s, I had a lot of fear of failure. You know, I had a lot of ambition and a lot of drive, but also a lot of fear that I would fail. And I think at this point, I've learned that, well, okay, you are going to fail, but it's not fatal. But you're also going to succeed. And, you know, that the confidence you get from that is what, allows you to continue to do more things, you know, and keep getting bigger. I mean, when you wrote the Four C's book, which I've probably given a couple hundred copies of that away, you know, it really, I think, capsulized for me what this whole journey is about. And so I think that 20-something Tony wouldn't have recognized both the courage and the failure as being both necessary to the success. It's kind of interesting. When my mother died, there was some boxes in the family home attic. In one of the boxes was some old notebooks I had. And I said, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a new educational system where people learn from their experience. In other words, 
Mm-hmm. They don't learn from other people's thoughts. They learn from their own thinking. So that was in 1964, and that's 56 years ago. And I was surprised at how clear I was about the vision right at the center, but all the experimentation I had to do to get to strategic coach and who I am today, that would be a great surprise to me. But I said, I kind of knew the melody line back then. I just couldn't write music. I couldn't play music and I couldn't put together a band. So it's kind of interesting. I think oftentimes entrepreneurs especially are actually very true where they are in their 50s and 60s to where they were when they were very young as a child, that there's a certain childhood enthusiasm and childhood passion that I think entrepreneurs perhaps hang on a lot better and they actually build on as they go forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thread, right? You know, I've done a lot of different things between then and now, but really they're all just, to use your musical metaphor, they're just different instruments playing, you know, similar music. Mm -hmm. One thing, Free Zone, you've been with us now since 18, I think the fall of 18, right? Well, just a little over a year now, actually. A little over a year. So the Free Zone, first of all, it was called the Game Changer when we started. And then the language that actually developed in our Free Zone workshops actually brought out the word people would say, you know, I feel like I'm kind of in a free zone. If I told my competition what I'm doing, I wouldn't be risking anything by telling them because I have a feeling that none of them could do what I was doing. And I just want to see in a year of exploring that concept of creating a free zone in the marketplace, and you're at the frontier of doing something very different. What would you say are the three things that have most jumped in that direction over the last year when you were in the program? Well, I think the first is, you know, it took me a while to try to really understand how the concept applied to my business. The whole idea of collaboration is one that our business is founded on. As you pointed out earlier, we do things our agents can't do, and they do things that we don't do. And so collaboration is built into our DNA. But the idea that you could actually collaborate with anyone, competitor or not, to create a third thing in a different way really opened up for me at the end of the year. I realized that one of the types of businesses that we have sought to bring into our organization, we were having to convince them to do it because of the structure of the way we put it together. We were selling them. When I realized that, you know, all we had to do was split this thing we were creating and change the way in which we described it, you know, so that you have an asset, we have an asset, let's put them together, create a pot of money and split it. You know, that's simplified the whole thing. We no longer have to be selling our product. And what's happened is we have a virtual 100% agreement when we talk to people about it. And that's leading to really big leaps for us, irrespective of what happens in COVID. Yeah. Um, I just wonder, Tony, if you've had any conversations with people who knew you before, let's say, the last three or four years, and you tell them what they're doing. And they would have been competitors beforehand. What's their response to how you're operating right now? Is it, are they mystified by it? Are they confused by it? Well, you know, we've had one actually recently with a a much smaller organization that does a few of the things similar to ours. And, you know, they're getting ready to join us, Uh, you know. So it's not a case of you can't beat them, join them. I think it's just a case of, okay, they can do what they do, but we can still work together to create something bigger than either one of us had. 
And I think those conversations are funny because it's almost like you hit somebody over the head and it takes them a little bit of time to really get what you're saying. But it's fun. It's fun. You know, it's really been interesting because right off the bat when we had the downturn, so it's been about three weeks for us, and we shut down all live workshops, in-person workshops until June. And we'll either have live workshops in June or we'll have virtual workshops and they'll be uh, as comprehensive in virtual terms as they would be if they were in person after June 1st. But the thing that I'd like to talk about here is just the Zoom conferences that we've been having over the last two and a half weeks. I think we've had five. Kind of what strikes you about how people are talking who are fellow participants in the free zone that you would say was probably very, very different from any conversations that are taking place out in the world right now? Well, they're enormously positive, and everybody is upbeat and excited about what they're doing and really optimistic. So it is interesting because, you know, if you listen to people on social media or whatever, there's a lot of doom and gloom, and and yet there's none of that on these calls. I think I told you, I mean, it's like sticking your finger into the light socket as far as the energy is concerned, and I've really benefited. In fact, I've got three or four pages of notes from each session. They're encouraging to me, and they're inspiring. Also, they've been a really great way of helping each other. I think that you've seen different people having an idea that somebody else grabs a hold of. And I know there was a call where one of the guys was thinking about laying some people off. And after a little bit of conversation, he's decided, no, he's not doing that. He's repurposing them to get ready to grow, you know, in a month or two. And that's been really, really fun. Mm -hmm. So it's been very heartening for me because my future really consists of cloning the kind of people who are in the free zone frontier right now. You know, and I've been sort of uniformly positive because I've been through it before. And I said, okay, you know, there's about four or five stages to this kind of disruption. And everybody's looking to us for leadership. And everybody's looking for us to be clear, to be confident, and to show great capability during this. So it's actually been a pleasure at 75 years old to actually be kind of a real positive force for people. I bet you feel that way too with your company and with everyone that you're talking to right now. Well, I absolutely do. I've spent a lot of time on Zoom calls with individuals, but also groups of individuals. And one of the things in my unique ability is inspiration and encouragement. And so, you know, I feel like I was really prepared by my creator for this opportunity. Well, you're kind of a pastor with a great lifestyle. That's what you are. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I got out of the ministry because I didn't want to be poor. Yeah. (laughs) My mother wanted me to be a priest, and I had some kind of pope in mind. I had, if you're going to go through the effort, you might as well not go economy. You should go first class. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, it is interesting because most people – are bereft. You know, they have lost, to your point earlier, they've lost their future, or at least their future is highly uncertain. And they really can't see past, you know, April 30th or whatever the next deadline is. Most people are bereft. They've lost their future, or at least their immediate future. They don't know what's going to happen to them past April 30th. And then they don't know what will happen after that. And so they need to be encouraged and inspired and be shown that, you know, there is a bigger future in front of them. 
but they respond to that. I was on a call yesterday with a senior executive of an insurance company who said that agents are starting to call them saying, hey, how can we work on our new business? You know, how can you help us with that? That happened faster than I thought it would. Mm. But we're resilient and we will come through this. But leaders just emerge. And I think the leadership now is just of encouragement. Yep. Yeah, that's very good. So, Tony, I just want to tell you, you're the attendance leader, perfect attendance at our Zoom calls, and I have a suspicion no one's going to overtake you. Well, I hope not. I plan to be in all of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've made them a priority. They're really, really important and valuable to me right now. Thank you, Tony. What a great pleasure talking to you. Great. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Take care, Dan. Take care.